Hello, everybody, and welcome to Just Nas Science Podcast, where each episode we find the worst science-related posts on social media and get just a little salty about them. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nick. And with each episode, we have three goals. The first is to promote higher thinking. The second is to educate. And the third is to make you laugh. This is a comedy podcast, after all. Real quick, though. You guys ever sit there and wonder what we look like? Or want to interact with us in real time? Or just support us in other ways? Well, then come check out our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash justnasscience, where we live stream talks about science, life, and even show you the science behind my cooking. And our guest today is an economist at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. In addition to research on programs that support low-income communities, he's a writer, teacher, and creator of policy-relevant data visualizations. He's considered a leading voice for clarity and accessibility in how researchers communicate their analyses. He's also the host of the Policy Viz podcast, John Schwabish. So I think the the first question that I really want to ask is, how are numbers and statistics used in science and medicine? That's a big question, Nick. There's a lot of numbers used for a lot of different things. Let me talk about something that I'm working on right now um, in this era of the COVID pandemic um, with regards to uh, kids and food. So right now, um, we are, uh, two colleagues and I, are interested in better understanding how kids who live in low-income households and families, how are they going to continue uh, getting free and reduced-priced meals that they're generally eligible for and receiving um, when they go to school. And now that schools are closed, what happens to these families? So we can look at things like number of kids who are eligible for free and reduced price meals. We can look at uh, kids in low income families in school districts and in zip codes and in counties. We can look at changes in trends over time. So those are just some of the kinds of numbers that we are interested in looking at so that we can better understand how families, how kids maintain nutrition, um, how they uh, find uh, fruits, vegetables, and healthy meals during this strange period of time where kids are, are no longer in school um, for, for obvious reasons. So that's just one example. And we use these numbers and statistics to understand the world around us. We use them how to understand how things change over time. We use them to understand how one group compares to another group. So we use them all the time to try to understand uh, the world around us. And the reason why it's so important to use numbers and statistics is it enables us to have a discussion rooted in evidence and rooted in the data, as opposed to a more subjective debate about crucial public policy or social policy or scientific questions. We want to be rooted in the scientific method so that when we have discussions, we are basing those discussions in fact. Awesome. So what was your conclusion in terms of like, should we close schools? And if we do, you know, where are these kids going to get these nutritional meals? Yeah. So we are actually 
as of today, still working on this project and we're trying to do it as fast as possible so we can get it out uh, to the world next week. So what we're finding, I give you sort of like the preview of what we're finding um, is that lots of school districts around the United States are obviously closed and lots of school districts are providing free and reduced price meals to their students and some are providing them in, a, in, in addition to the students are providing uh, meals to um, adults and other family members who may not be um, may not be students in those schools. And they're doing that in a variety of different ways. So lots of school districts are using what we're calling a grab and go model, where the family might go to say the parking lot of a school or the parking lot of a community center, which you would not be able to do um, in sort of what I'll call normal times. You have to be in normal times, you would have to be a student in the school, in the cafeteria to, to uh, get the meal. Um, but now they're having these models of grab and go. So we can look at how many kids in these school districts are driving, not the kids are driving, but the going into these parking lots and getting these meals. Um, we're also looking at things like uh, certain uh, counties are um, using the buses, the school buses to drive meals around. And there are certain bus stops where you can go to, uh, to get these, get these meals. Um, there's variations in variation of what days school districts are providing food, what times they're providing food. Um, there's different ways in, that they're contacting families. So there's all sorts of different things that we are interested in better understanding. Um, and obviously down the, down the road, uh, I think sort of once we're out of this, this pandemic uh, era uh, where people are, you know, at home and distancing from one another. Um, once we get back into when schools are open and we can start doing real surveys again, we'll be able to do some more research and to understand the nutritional impact and the health impact uh, on, on kids. Uh, were they eligible? Were they receiving these foods and these meals versus those that maybe were not eligible or maybe didn't know about them or weren't able to go get them? So um, we're interested in a lot of different aspects of this and you know, we can sort of already see lo a longer term research agenda uh, going forward. Absolutely. I know as a teacher in New York City here, I know a lot of our schools are doing the grab and go method. And right. from, from what they're reporting, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids are picking up this food. So is it the best option? I don't know. Do they still take public transportation to get to the school to do it? Right. You know, there's a lot to consider, but I think in like the snap, <laughs> the snap decision they had to make, it was yeah. a good, a good fallback on, I guess. No, that's exactly right. And you, you know, you can't fault them for, for, you know, the models that districts are using, maybe it's not, maybe it's not the perfect model, but it's hard, hard to say that it's not the perfect model when they had to turn this around so quickly and come up with a solution to the problem. Um, I think the, the issue you raised about public transportation is really interesting. There's issues about stigma. You know, if you're in a well-to-do suburban neighborhood, for example, um, and you're a kid or a family that's lower income, are you going to, are you willing to drive to pick up those meals or go to that, that bus stop? It's hard to know, um, you know, what, what's, what's going to happen to these, to these families. The, the interesting question that I think is essentially going to be a big unknown is what share of kids who were receiving meals when they were in school how many of them are still receiving meals now that we have these grab and go or, or other programs. So that is a, I think a big unknown. We're certainly not going to know that in the near term, 
Um, whether we know that in the long term is a, is a question I think to, to be seen and, and maybe possibly to answer. But ideally, what you'd like to say is in, you know, the New York City School District, for example, you know, this number of kids would receive free reduced price meals during the school day every school year and during or every month. Um, and during these two, three, four months where kids are not in school, that number wasn't X number of kids, it was Y number of kids. And why did those kids uh, get, get the meals and why did some other kids not? So these are the sorts of questions that we're interested in exploring and, and understanding a little bit better. And it's really interesting because this topic doesn't affect just a small number of people. I mean, I was doing, I was doing some research for an opinion article I was writing and it came across that 75% of school districts report school debt lunch, uh, school lunch debt rather. Mm -hmm. So that's a tremendous number. I mean, 75% of all school districts across the country, that's tremendous. It's yeah. a tremendous amount. And there's a tremendous amount of kids who are food insecure, who do not have enough food every day. Um, and in a country as wealthy as the United, as wealthy as the United States, um, it's really a shame that we have that. I mean, in, in the county which I live in, Northern Virginia, um, there are, uh, I think it's 188,000 kids um, are in that are in our school district. I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of children, um, and trying to feed and care for those kids and their families in a time where not only are those kids not in school, and not only do those kids come from low-income families, but many of those low-income families, many of the adults in those families, you know, they may be losing their jobs because their business is closed because their employer has you know, closed down for social distancing or for whatever reason. So you are taking a population that is already at risk to be food insecure and making them even more at risk because of what uh, the COVID pandemic is doing to the economy and what it's forcing us as, as a society to do to try to stop the, the spread of the virus. I, I think it's incredible work that you're doing. And because you're working a lot with statistics and numbers and, and facts, charts, there's a lot of opportunity for it to be manipulated. And, mm. you know, we often hear the phrase, oh, the numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. But they, they can certainly be manipulated, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting moment that we're in. Um, not just of, of COVID, but sort of a broader and interesting moment when it, when it comes to visualizing data, because we are such a, well, first off, we're such a visual species to begin with, but the way society and technology has evolved over the last, let's say, 10, 20 years, you know, we are bombarded with visual information. And so data visualizations and graphs and charts have become that much more important to communicating and analyzing data. And so just in the last several days, I've seen a variety of different visualizations that are very obviously misleading, um, very obviously um, showing statistics, showing numbers um, that at a glance, you might say, oh yeah, yeah, this thing is bigger than this thing. But if you are someone who is familiar with that graph or that graph type or familiar with data or statistics or, or familiar with uh, the disease or, you know, an epidemiologist or, 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 or a health professional, you know, might say for a second, wait, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't really look, look right. And so one of the things that we have is you have specialists who either in the content area or in, or in graphs sort of generally 
who are able to make those, uh, who are able to discern that and, and see those issues and that misrepresentation. But for most people, it's another chart that they see. And so that line is going up and this bar is bigger than this bar. Um, so it's a real danger, especially in this particular time that we're at, because it's not just saying, oh, the unemployment rate has gone up or the uh, unemployment rate has gone down. We're talking about data that can not just impact lives, but it can, you know, it can kill people, right? If you don't fully understand and see how, for example, social distancing is so important to help as we've, you know, sort of learned this term flatten the curve. If you don't understand that, or you don't believe in that, or the numbers that you are seeing and um, living your life by, are not true, you may be more likely, for example, to go out and play basketball with your friends or go to a party. Um, and, and that has the, the real possibility of killing people. So, you know, I think many times we talk about data being misrepresented or being, you know, massaged in a particular way. And maybe it doesn't have a huge impact, but I think we are in a moment where it is even more important that people are honest with the data and people are very careful with the data and how they present it because it can have real impact on, on real people. Yeah. Th thank you for saying that. I feel so relieved. I'm like, somebody else sees that too. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> like yeah. so many people, like it tends to be like in any, any topic, the people who don't understand it tend to be the loudest. And mm. so you know, this is basically why we started the podcast is because people who are spreading like false information tend to be heard a lot of the time. Yeah. And, you know, this whole thing's going around about people like videotaping their um, hospitals in the area and be like, look how quiet it is here. Like, so this whole thing must be a farce. And it's like, oh my God, come on right. guys. Like you don't <laughs> want to be like New York right no. now. And this is what we have to do to prevent right. that. Like, come yeah. on. No, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. I think one of the things that I hope will come out of this um, moment, this pandemic on, on, on this topic of using data and creating graphics and visualizations is that more people will recognize that they're not experts in everything. That we as individuals need to admit to ourselves that we're not experts in lots of different topics. And so even if, you know, you're an expert in, um, in data visualization, let's say. Let's say you're a great web programmer, great web developer, you know everything about data visualization, but you might not be an epidemiologist. So to create a map about the spread of COVID, maybe you shouldn't be publishing that because it can be misrepresent, misrepresenting things. The same holds true on the flip, right? You might be an epidemiologist and understand the modeling of the spread of the pandemic, but maybe you shouldn't be going out there and trying to create an interactive data visualization because you don't know all the ins and outs of, of how the data are best displayed and how people use these things. So, you know, I've been talking with lots of people for, for several years now about this, this idea that, you know, we want to find and hire unicorn, what I call unicorns, you know, people who can do all of these different things. And I've argued that those people don't exist. That's why we call them unicorns. Um, and, and a better model is to build teams and organizations um, and companies where we have all these different skill sets. And I think I'm hoping that one of the positive outcomes of this moment that we're in is that people say, you know, I'm really good at this thing or these two or three or four things, 
but I don't know enough about statistics or design or healthcare or, or what have you. And so to do better, I need to go find those types of people, reach out to them and work with them so that the thing that we build together, be it a website or a data visualization or a product or, or what have you, that thing is better and that thing is closer to the truth. I mean, I don't know, John, I'm seeing a lot of experts on Twitter, so I'm not sure what you're saying. But. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure we should rely on Twitter to find the experts, but yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody, uh, there's, there's got to be a t-shirt out there, right, that says I'm an expert in everything or something like that. It has so, to be. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to talk about an article you wrote, Data Visualization and how someone can be really good at it, but not understand the healthcare or the, the scientific mechanisms behind it. You wrote this article about the 60,000 fallacy. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us or walk us through that? Yeah. So this is one of those, um, one of these, let's call it facts that people see and they take for granted because they've seen it in, in multiple places. And so this, I'm going to, you can't see cause it's, audio, but I'm putting quotes around this. It's this statistic, this fact um, that we process visuals 60,000 times faster than text. Um, and this statistic, this little phrase pops up. I've seen it everywhere. Um, I've seen it in blog posts. I've seen it in news articles. I've seen it in infographics. I've seen it on, um, on Twitter all the time. So it's a really nice kind of sexy number because it's really helpful for people who are in uh, visual uh, content areas to say, yeah, of course you should create a graph or use a photograph be than, you know, than text or than this or than a table because we process visuals 60,000 times faster than text. So um, that number I found, you know, all over the place. And it just, what, what struck me about it is that it's such an interesting number that as, um, as an economist, my, my background is in economics, my instinct is to say, okay, so there must be a research paper behind this. And how do they actually figure this out? How do you, I mean, on the face of it, how would you ever figure out that we can process visuals 60,000 times faster than text? If you think about how you'd actually do that, um, you would show someone some visual and they would have to provide you with some kind of information. And then you'd show them then the same sort of thing as text. And then you sort of compare the two. And so it's interesting sort of thought experiment. How would you do this? So what I did is I started looking through all these websites to where some of them would actually cite the research. So we go and I sort of, sorry, start digging in. And I find the original source appears to be a two page report that was published in 1997 from uh, the 3M Corporation. So 3M, I think was the inventor of post-it notes. So as much as I love post-it notes, um, I'm not sure this, this, this publication lived up to that, to that promise. So, <laughs> um, so they have this, this little two page report that says, um, you know, we process visuals 60 times, 60,000 times faster than text. Okay. So if you go into that research uh, paper, um, you, there are no references at the, at the end of the paper as any, you know, peer reviewed journal article would have of references or citation sections, not there. Um, but they have this little box on one page that has like these four, um, four little papers. And so I went through and found what was not easy to do because they were not like, journal articles. There were these kind of random things. One was like 
a magazine from, I think a, um, uh, an, a magazine from like an in-flight magazine that you would get in like the pocket of your, of your airplane uh, thing. Um, some were, one was like a presentation. So like you have to like go dig these up, but none of them uh, showed, found this 60,000 number. None of them showed that. So, um, you know, it's not true. I mean, it, it might be true. I don't know if it's true, um, but at least the research, the trail of the research went cold. So there's actually no statistical evidence that we process visuals 60,000 60, times faster than text. It could be true, but it's not something that I would ever say to anybody because the, there is, as far as I know, no research that actually documents that. It's just something that at some point someone came up with and it sounded good, and so someone else picked it up, and then someone else picked it up, and it just spread, um, and, and you find it all over the place. And so, uh, as you mentioned, Nick, I, I wrote this blog post just saying, look, this was my process for trying to dig all the way down, get all the way down to the roots of this particular uh, claim, and to see where it comes from, and, and there is no uh, research paper um, that, that makes this actual claim. Man, it almost sounds like the people who make post-it notes lied about this to sell their <laughs> brightly colored post-it notes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it is hard to believe because I do love my post-it notes. I've got yeah. a lot sitting around me right now. But um, You'd be surprised at what uh, certain companies have their origins are like if you look at the origins of Kellogg's like you would you would blow your mind oh right yeah 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 Yeah, these these origin stories are are pretty interesting and you know there are all these fun ones about company names that you find um the one that I like is uh I I'm probably not so much anymore but when I was uh, in high school I was a big Pearl Jam fan um and I only found out years later that Pearl Jam they named the band because I think the bassist's uh grandmother her her name was Pearl and, and that's basically like the origin of the, of, and they would like hang out at his house, I guess. And so that was like the origin of the, of the name of the band. So um, that's, that's cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, the, the Kellogg's thing is much darker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about this after. I don't know. Very quickly. The guy who created Kellogg's, uh, he was, I don't want to say insane. He was just extremely, extremely religious and he created Kellogg's to help stop kids from oh masturbating yeah, yeah. i was, I was yeah. gonna say beating it but yeah masturbating is the comical <laughs> way yeah. i did hear this okay <laughs> but Yeesh. speaking of companies doing nasty or misleading things mm. do you have any examples of how companies or um or other things have used misleading data to prompt individuals to buy their product like for example like weight loss companies or weight loss products do this all the time. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I can't think of anything specific off, uh, off the top of my head, but I think a lot of the scams that we receive, via, mostly via email, a lot of those are based on this idea that it looks like it's coming from a reputable source. And so therefore it must be true, right? I was actually going through my, I was trying to get into some, you know, get through my um, account into some website today. And I was looking at my spam folder to see if the forgot your password email showed up. And I'm noticing that there's a lot from PayPal and, you know, I'm clicking on the, you know, clicking on the email to see what it is. And it's, you know, it's clearly not PayPal, right? But 
you can see how they do these phishing scams because they put PayPal in big words. It's a sort of frightening thing. Oh, you know, your PayPal account is being suspended or it's not updated. Um, so I think that's sort of like the modern place of how companies or organizations are using data irresponsibly and trying to not so much even get you to buy something, but they're trying to mislead you. Um, and, and in these cases, you know, they're doing it for malicious intent. So John, last question. Is yeah. there any additional information that you want us to know or that we should keep in mind when looking at data? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the big thing that I would like people to know and, and wish people understood better is uncertainty and distributions of data. But when you see a number that comes out, there is always uncertainty around that number, almost always. There's almost always uncertainty around that number. There's always uh, some kind of error or distribution around that number. And I think a lot of us are familiar with this in a very particular way when we see polling data in politics. I think we're all familiar with the approval rate for candidates such and such is 53% with a margin of error plus or minus three percentage points. And so we see that and I feel like most people sort of understand that. In that example, 53% approval rate, a margin of error plus or minus three percentage points means that the approval rate could be as low as 50% or it could be as high as 56%. But that applies to lots of other things that we, uh, numbers that we see and look at and hear about all the time. The unemployment rate, the poverty rate, number of kids that are food insecure, going back to what we were talking about earlier. There's uncertainty and distributions around all of these numbers. I think the, the example, Nick, that you were talking about earlier with the weight loss products, you know, they show these two or three people who lost 80 pounds, you know, the average is four pounds, which means there's most of the people are losing around four pounds. Some may be even adding weight through this program. And there's only these, you know, these what we might call outliers or along this long tail of this distribution that are losing these 80 pounds. So what I would hope people would think about more is that whenever you see a number that there's a distribution around that number, even if they tell you that the unemployment rate, they being the federal government, even if you hear that the unemployment rate is 4.5%, there's still some squishiness or uncertainty around that number, even though they're telling you it's 4.8%, you know, even the survey that they're conducting, it's not free from error. It's not a hundred percent accurate. They're not asking every person in the United States, whether they're unemployed or employed or not. They're asking a sample of people in the United States. So that 4.8% is the best guess that the Bureau of Labor Statistics can give, but there's uncertainty and there's a distribution around that number. And I think if, if people understood the idea of distributions, understood better, better understood what a percentile is, um, better understood what the median is, I think we would have different types of conversations around data because we would be much, uh, I think, less confident in saying that this number is this and that's the truth. Whereas we would say this number is this and that's our best guess. And that's a very different type of conversation that we might have. I really wish that we had more time to sit here and talk about 
confidence intervals, power analysis, <laughs> uh, just, you know, P values and statistical significance. Yeah. Like when someone says something is significant, it, it means a certain thing. And I don't, right. I don't think most people know that because most people don't deal with scientific journals and, and scientific right. data like that. So it, it gets misused all the time. All the but, time. Yeah. yeah and, I, I, and I would, I, I mean, we don't need to belabor the point, but I think it also gets misused by researchers, you know, when researchers say something significant, you know, significant can mean a couple of things. It could mean that it's statistically significant, which is the mathematical definition, or it could mean it's significant and that this is a meaningful finding. And so uh, I wish even researchers were a little bit more careful with the words that they used, um, especially as they communicate to, you know, people who are not experts. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways that we can improve the way we communicate and, and read and understand data. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it's, I, I wish we did have time to talk about all this, all this fun. I mean, for you and for us, it's fun, maybe not for everybody else, but for us, it's fun stuff for sure. Lauren's already moved on. She's, she's out. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time to sit and talk with us about all this. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so yeah, much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us today. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and especially share it. It takes literal seconds to hit subscribe and click the five-star review button, and it would mean a whole lot to us. Positive ratings and shares on social media is the biggest way you can help us spread this good, good science to even more people. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Just Now Science. If you want to hear more from John, visit his website, policyviz.com. That's policyviz.com. You can find the link to his website in the show notes and on our website, justnascience.com. While you're on our site, you can watch YouTube videos, read blog posts, or submit questions and suggest topics for future episodes. And don't forget, we put out new episodes every Tuesday. As always, thanks again for listening, guys. Later, nerds. Later, gators. <laughs>